Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from Pastor Don Brock. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. I have to confess to you, there, there really is an evil side of me. And um, I, I really was going to come out here today and have everybody, well, Jason, our director of our sound and uh, in our media, um, he got married on Friday. So I was uh, had the privilege of doing the, the wedding, and I was going to come out here and have every single one of you take out your phones, and we were all going to text him at the same time and say, what are you doing? And, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and then I thought, that was, I'm not going to ruin his, uh, well, maybe. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I, do, I really do think evil stops. You know, I don't know where that comes from. But uh, anyway, y'all pray for Jason and Maddie as they start off uh, their marriage, and we're excited for him. You know, legacy um, it is something I was thinking about the other day, and um, and I was thinking about the fact that you know you hear you hear about presidents talking about what their legacy is going to be and all this, and and we all we all have a legacy. Um, but I started thinking about the reality of it, and, uh, and I started thinking about my legacy, where I came from, the legacy that I'm a part of. So it's amazing what you can do online. And so this past week, I just did a little research, and, uh, and I you know, only did my dad's family line because you know, every time you add another generation, you're doubling the number of lines that start in that family tree. And so I just did my dad's line and just followed all the dads back. And I was able to go all the way to the 1300s. And um, my family originally came out of Switzerland. And uh, some came out of Ireland and some came out of England. Some came out of Scotland. Some came out of Germany. I don't know. I think we just had a bad reputation. They kept kicking us out of countries. I don't don't know. But my family name used to be Brack, B-R-A-C-K. And then in the early 1700s, uh, one of the people in my, uh, my dad's line, one of the, the Brocks, Bracks, uh, immigrated to um, the colonies in the 17, early 1700s into Virginia, and the name got changed to Brock. Now, I don't know if it was a clerical error of what caused that. There's no, I cannot find any documentation that explains that, but that wasn't that uncommon or either they kept having to move a lot and they wanted to change the name, I don't know. Um, But anyway, they came in the early 1700s and a lot of my relatives fought in the Revolutionary War. And and so that was pretty interesting to see that. But I I just wanna go back just uh, three generations. So this, I wanna show you a picture. This first picture is the, I knew both of these individuals. These are my great-grandparents. It was my dad's grandparents. Um, <clears throat> Doc Elliott is the tall guy. He was a very tall guy. If you look at him in any family pictures, he's a good foot taller than anybody else in the picture. And um, 
He died in 1960 when I was only six years old, but I remember him, but I only remember him being in a hospital bed, uh, you know, that he, when he was just in the last years of his life. And uh, when, but when he was born, Ulysses S. Grant was president and there was only 37 states at that time. Now, grandmother Elliot, the one standing next to him, I knew her. She was the last great-grandparent that I had. She died when I was 12, uh, about six months after my dad died. And I used to actually spend the night with her because she didn't live that far from us. And all I remember is that she had a wood-burning stove that she refused to get rid of. She was not going to transition to an electric stove or a gas stove. And, uh, and, I, and I just remember the that, that smell in the house from the wood-burning stove. And, um, and I remember having conversations with her, and it was always interesting. And now the other, my other dad's grandparents, this is a family photo, and uh, so it was a big family that they came from. That's John Brock, the dad. I never knew him. He died in 1937 when he was 58 years old. But his wife, I knew her, and, uh, and the one that's leaning up on the knee of uh, John Williams, that's my grandfather, my dad's dad. And I remember when I first saw this picture, I asked my grandfather, I said, what's wrong with you? Why were you so grumpy that, in that picture? And he said, because I didn't want to be in the picture, and I got a big spanking right before. <laughs> so he, he is uh, kind of like you know, hurting. <laughs> and so anyway, that was funny. Um, but I, I'm going to show you my last grandparent. Uh, this is Della Brock. This is my dad's mom. She lived to be 102. She died in 2011. So she was the last grandparent I had. I actually did her funeral. And uh, she, was, she was the funny person. She was spunky. She was hilarious. I remember when we took Meredith over to meet her because she lived by herself until she was 101 years old. And uh, she, when we took Meredith to go meet her, I mean, she just had everybody in stitches. And, uh, and the last time I visited her, not too long before she died, <clears throat> she was, we had her in a nursing home at that point. And I went to see her and I just got down on her face and said, hey, Grandma, this is Donald. And she looked at me, she said, I know who you are. How's, how's Mary? How's Katie? How's Matt? And then she had a little smirk on her face, like, I bet you didn't think I knew their names. <laughs> and she, but her mind, up until her death, her mind was sharp as a tack. And uh, I remember when we were sitting there with Meredith over there, I said, Grandma, I said, how long have you been in this house? And she says, oh, it's 75 years. It was 80 years, maybe. And I said, well, how much do you pay for it? She told me what she paid for it. And then she said, and then I hired so-and-so and gave us the name. And I paid him $700 to paint the whole thing. And she could just tell us everything. And her mind just never wavered uh, all the way to the rest of her life, which was amazing. And, uh, but she was spunky. When she was like 90, I want to say 97 or so, uh, she caught a man in her house who was trying to find some money. And so she went right up to him. She said, what are you doing? 
And he said, well, I'm looking for money. She said, well, here's $20. It's all I got. You get out of my house. And he said, well, if that's your last $20, I don't want it. And she said, I want you to take my $20, and I want you to get out of my house. Well, I called her. I said, Grandma, are you okay? She said, yeah. I said, well, did that scare you? She said, no, made me mad. And I said, oh. I said, well, do you need anybody to come stay with you? She said, no, I'm ready for him when he comes back. I said, you are? She said, yeah, I got me a shooter. I said, <laughs> I said you mean a gun? She said, yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> and I, and I, I immediately called my uncle. I said, you better get over to your mother's house. <laughs> She's going to shoot somebody. <laughs> of course, it might take her five minutes to pull the trigger, but... <laughs> Anyway, she was just that kind of person. And, um, but here, here's the reality. Here's the harsh reality. Your life, your influence, your legacy, it might go back three generations, but most likely it's only going to go back two generations. I mean, I've, I've got my grandkids, i got my six grandkids, but I don't have any great-grandkids yet. I might not be around when they start showing up. So after two generations, at least after three generations, nobody's going to be talking about you. They might look at your picture like what I just showed you. Oh, that was so-and-so. But I can't tell you what my great-grandfather did. I don't know what kind of jobs they had. And uh, I, don't, I, don't, you know, I don't remember much of anything. And I certainly don't talk about them. And I can't remember anything that they ever said to me other than I can remember grandparents. And people, I mean, this is a harsh reality. People will stop thinking about you. They'll stop talking about you. So I want to talk about, I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about a legacy that's worth leaving. A legacy where lives are being transformed. So that's a legacy worth living. When you transform someone's life, that's a legacy worth living. And that's a legacy that lasts for eternity. So you have the opportunity as a believer to leave a legacy that will last for eternity. Far better than the legacy that most of us are gonna leave. And I mean, it's, this, is not, this is not complicated. When you choose to encourage people, to pray for people, to use your spiritual gifts all for the sake of the gospel, that translates into an eternal legacy eternal rewards, a true, genuine legacy. That you're encouraging people about Jesus, that you're praying for people for their salvation, that you are, you, you know, every time you use your spiritual gift, every single time, it translates into an eternal thing because you're fulfilling God's plan and purpose for your life, every time you use your spiritual gift, 
You are being who God created you to be, and every time you're being who God created you to be, that translates into a a legacy that's worth having, a legacy that will last for eternity. Now, I want us to look in Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 14. Paul says, for, for I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and the uneducated alike. Basically, Paul was telling us, we have a mandate. We have a privilege to share the gospel. For I have a great sense of obligation to people. So we have this, we have this spiritual thing in us. We have been invested in by God with the Holy Spirit. We have been trusted with spiritual giftedness. We have been given the mandate from Jesus Himself, and that is to share the gospel of Jesus. So my question then is, well, what, what's your motivation? You know, it's easy just to be comfortable around the people that you're comfortable with, you know? But even then, we struggle to share the gospel with a family member or a friend. But it even gets a little more uncomfortable when we get out of our comfort zone and we share with people that aren't in our social circles aren't in our class of people. You know, say one of you discovered the cure for cancer, and you discovered that if people just took this one single shot or take this one single pill, any cancer they have will go away and will never, ever come back. And you chose to keep that to yourself. Now, that's another level of wickedness right there. Of course, you would tell the world about it. Well, you and I, we have the cure. It's been entrusted to us, the cure for a cancer. You know, we deal with cancer that can kill the body. But we have the cure for cancer that can kill the soul, the eternal soul of someone. We have the cure for that, and his name is Jesus. But we hold it to ourselves, and that's like a form of wickedness, I think. I mean, the greatest thing that you could do for anyone is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said in verse 15, so I am eager. I am eager to come to you in Rome, too. Why? So we can have parties and stuff? No, he said, no, to preach the good news. I am eager to come and tell people there about Jesus. So it, it, it was more than just an obligation. It was a sincere desire. My guess is some of you, and, and the reason I can say this is because I'm including myself. There, let's, let's just face it. Sometimes you sit there and you go, 
I guess I better share Jesus with them, or I, I guess I just need to do that. And, and we feel like begrudging, like, ah, they, I need to, instead of having just this sincere desire, uh, this passion, I, I, I just can't help it. I, I've just got to tell this individual who Jesus is. Now, if you can get yourself from feeling obligated to an eagerness, boy, that can change everything. Paul says, I'm eager. I'm so eager to share the good news. <clears throat> and that's why I want to come there, to share the good news. Then in verse 16, he says, for, for I'm not ashamed of this good news. I'm not embarrassed by it. This good news about Jesus it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. <clears throat> so you ask God to give you an eagerness to share the gospel, and God will give you a confidence to share the gospel. When you ask for an eagerness, God will give you confidence. God, I'm lazy spiritually. I am slow to want to tell people about Christ because it makes me nervous. I don't know how to share Jesus effectively. Does this sound familiar? So God, I, I just ask that you give me an eagerness. And when... God answers that prayer. And I want to tell you, anytime you pray to God about something concerning the gospel, he's probably going to answer it. <clears throat> and so when you ask for an eagerness, God basically ups the ante. He said, not only am I going to give you an eagerness, I'm going to give you the confidence to share the gospel. That means you, you got to know how to share it. You got to know what the gospel is. So when Paul said, I am not ashamed, he's talking about his confidence, and, uh, which was far more than just an obligation. And, you know, this, when he said, I'm not ashamed, that was really an understatement. It's like telling somebody, uh, they're not a bad ball player, which translate means they're a good ball player. But when you say they're not a bad ball player, then you're underestimating it. And uh, so Paul, when he said, I'm not ashamed, that was an understatement because Paul was just the opposite. He was bold. <clears throat> and the sad thing, though, do you know any Christians who actually are ashamed to share the gospel? Maybe it's even you. I, I don't know. They're afraid they won't be accepted. They're, they're afraid that their friends will think they're a Jesus freak, one of those, especially in a politically charged atmosphere that we're in now, that anybody stands up for the gospel is called all sorts of names. You know, I think the reason some people are ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel reveals our helplessness. It shows us what we cannot do for ourselves. It shows us that we need God. It shows us that we cannot save ourselves. 
It shows us that we have to depend on God alone. Now, when Paul said, I'm not ashamed, you need to understand the background of that statement. For the sake of the gospel, Paul had already been in prison in Philippi. He had been chased out of Thessalonica. He had been smuggled out of Berea. He had been laughed out of Athens. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten five times. He was stoned twice, and he was left for dead once. So Paul's basically saying, I'm proud to be a Christian, and nothing's going to stop me from being proud about it. Nothing's going to stop me for, for sharing this news that saved my life. And I don't apologize for telling others about Christ. Now, when it said Jews first and then the Gentiles, does that mean that the Jews had to be saved before the Gentiles? Nope, that's not what that means at all. It's talking more about chronology here instead of uh, priority because God gave the message to the Jews first, but nowhere in the Bible does God explain why he chose Jews, uh, the Jewish nation, or created the Jewish nation to be his chosen people. He didn't explain himself, and nor does he have to, but that's what he did. But he chose them to be the missionaries to the world, and they have blown it. I mean, he chose them to spread the gospel, but they took the good news and the relationship with God and they didn't share it, they kept it to themselves. And so God had another plan, it was called the church. And so he sent Jesus to die for us, and now the gospel belongs to everyone, Jew, Gentile, Greek, non-Greek, wise and unwise. But sadly, a lot of churches have become just like the Jews did. And we think it's all about us. And so we create our little group. And we don't share it. Because we think it's all about us. Verse 17. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith, from start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. No, so now verse 17 actually clarifies verse 16. So the gospel, righteousness, God, and faith, these four words, they represent the four major themes of the book of Romans. And, and so God gives righteousness to us, that means Literally, we're in right relationship, right standing with God because of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? Paul says it's because from first to last of faith that you choose to believe Jesus. And it's completely by faith. Nothing you can earn, nothing that you can do except simply believe. And Paul ends this section by actually quoting Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. It is through faith that a righteous person has life. So if you want to be right with God, it has to be through faith. So I, I don't know about you, but I learn a lot by, by Paul's example. Here's just a couple of practical applications. 
You need to clarify your relationship with Christ. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ. Are you? So clarify your relationship with Jesus. You know, there, there's no such thing as a volunteer army in the church. We're all called to be a part of this. And if we're not, as a believer, if I'm not using my spiritual gifts, I'm AWOL. I'm absent without leave. I'm not doing what I am supposed to do. Number two, understand the gospel. The gospel, it's about a person. It's about Jesus, 100% God and 100% man. That's what it's about. And God comes and he works in our lives by grace. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Number three, recognize the importance of other people. They matter to God. They have a soul. And that soul is either going to be in heaven or hell for all eternity. It matters to God. Number four, have a right motivation to sharing the gospel. This past week, we were at the lake, and we were having the grandkids there. And Katie's kids always bring their friends and they've pretty much brought the same friends year after year after year, so we've gotten to know them pretty good. And one of the guys that they bring is two years older than my grandsons, and he's just been a great friend to my grandsons. They live across the street from each other, they go to school together, and he's just kind of watched out for them. So I sat him down, and I said, hey, I, I, I just want to talk to you for a second. I said, I want you to know how much I appreciate that you've been a great example for my grandsons. You know, you, you, you make good decisions. You, you don't fall into the traps a lot of people fall into. And you've just been a great example to my grandkids. And I appreciate that. And, and he said, thank you. I, that means a lot to me. And I said, you know, I can't help but think that you think about spiritual things. He said, oh, I do. I think about spiritual things a lot. I said, well, have, have you ever made a decision about Jesus? And he said, no. He said, um, I, I do have a lot of questions. I said, well, that's great. I said, maybe, maybe sometime soon we can sit down and we can just talk about your questions. And he said, or maybe we could do it right now. I said, all right, because <laughs> all the guys had already gone down to the lake, and they were in the water, and, and, uh, but no, he wanted to have a spiritual conversation. And I said, all right, fire away. What are your questions? And he started asking question after question. We talked to him, and he said, why this, why that? You know, what makes Christianity right versus something else? And, and how can I trust the Bible? I mean, just normal, great questions. And... Um, and I, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to get you a Bible. It's a student Bible, but it it's, has a whole thing of apologetics in it, which answers these very questions you're asking. And I want you to just take it and study it, and then you and I'll text or talk to each other, and, 
So we've started texting with each other and we'll talk about it. We're going to start, you know, talking about some of his questions. And I can't help but believe now that he's searching that my job is to pray for him every day. Pray for him that he will open his heart to Jesus, that as he searches, Jesus will reveal himself to him. And I have no doubts that God will answer that prayer. And it all just began by saying, hey, thanks for being the kind of person you are. And then start asking questions. Because actually, I assumed that he was a believer. But I'm thankful I asked. Because an assumption would have been deadly. So there are a lot of people you could just ask simple questions to. And you can just simply talk to them. Share with them. Then you get to verse 18. Verse 18 kind of changes gears a little bit. It says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Uh, I want you to sit on that last phrase there for a moment. We're going to come back to that. God has an anger towards sin, but God never loses control. So why does God have an anger about sin is because it destroys life and it twists creation. And so there's two objects of God's wrath. First is godliness, godlessness, which is living as if God does not exist. And then wickedness, which is living without any rules. And one of the ways that man responds to God's revelation through nature and through Jesus, one of the ways is they suppress the truth about God. In fact, jump to verse 21 and 22 in Romans. It says, yes, they knew God. They knew God. But they won't worship him as God or even give him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Sounds familiar. Sounds like a lot of people I've observed. But there is hope. <clears throat> Matthew, I mean, Romans 8, 5, verses 8 and 9. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Now, let me share a harder truth. <clears throat> Back to verse 18. When I had the 12th grade guys up at the lake house that uh, graduated this past year, we were studying Romans, and we got to verse 18, and I read that part that wicked people who suppress the truth 
by their wickedness. And you know, my first reaction is always kind of like, oh yeah, God hates the wickedness. He hates wicked people. He's going to get them. And uh, you know, that's his job. And then I, I locked in on that phrase, suppresses the truth. And the Holy Spirit just put a check in my heart. And I said to the guys, every time I choose not to share the good news of Jesus, I'm suppressing the truth. And that's a form of wickedness. And man, we just stopped our study and started praying for a while. Every time I choose to not share Jesus, I'm suppressing the truth. And that's a form of wickedness. So what is going to be your legacy? When Christ is first in your life and last in your life and everything in between in your life. <clears throat> when God, when Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega and all the other letters in between in your life. When you start praying for people, when you start sharing with people, when you start using your spiritual gift, that's when you start having a legacy that's worth leaving. Let's pray.